Welcome back, everybody, to Church in the Wild. This is part two of the conversation I began in my last last episode about anxiety. This is uh, an anxious world, part two. And I want to talk a little bit further about anxiety to unpack it and clarify what anxiety actually is and what it does. I've got another episode that's going to release here very shortly uh, in just a couple of days that's going to talk about the symptoms or signs of what anxiety will look like. But I want to dive a little bit deeper on just creating a really good, clear understanding of what anxiety is. And I mentioned in my last episode, the reason for that is simply because anxiety is a very common word in our modern day vernacular. The mental health conversation and the rise of anxiety and even clinical anxiety sorts of conditions are seemingly on the rise. And so it has brought all these things to uh, the forefront and to the mainstream. And um, while that's all really good in terms of diminishing stigmas and allowing people to get the help that they need clinically or therapeutically or otherwise, that's all fantastic. The problem is it's just how convoluted that term has now become. And when we use that term in casual conversation, it's not always clear exactly what we're talking about. And so I want to provide um, some of the things that I've been learning and studying over the last several years uh, from both a theological perspective as well as a psychological perspective. And so some of the psychological literature that I have really been learning and drawing a lot of benefit from has been in the realm of uh, family systems theory or otherwise known as Bowen theory. But And I found that the integration of that with the scriptures and the ways in which the dynamics of that theory play out in the scriptures are absolutely not only fascinating, but extremely helpful, uh, extremely explanatory, um, very, uh, in some ways, very foundational, just to understanding the operation of the human heart and the um, patterns and processes of relationships and how they work. Uh, when we say things like health or maturity or immaturity or dysfunction, uh, this is uh, this language uh, is language that we can actually be more specific with and, and beginning to describe, well, what does it look like to be healthy? What does it look like to be immature? And so on and so forth. And as we, be, uh, as we continue the conversation about anxiety, I want to talk about uh, a little bit deeper of an aspect of it. We talked about in the last episode how anxiety is like this general cloud that fear and anxiety are related and fear typically has an object attached to it, whereas anxiety often doesn't. And so it, it, it isn't like as if I have a fear of snakes, a fear of heights, a fear of death. Anxiety can just be this general blanket of threat that we have just going on in our mind or just kind of weighing us down, maybe somewhere in the background. But what anxiety then causes us to do and how it causes us to feel is what can create all kinds of problems for us. I want to go a little bit further in that conversation and talk about anxiety from, from a couple different angles and perspectives. Um, one of the different dynamics of anxiety is actually just to look at the roots of the word itself, the origins in terms of where it conceptually has even come from. And anxiety comes from a really interesting family of words. Uh, the great-grandfather is the Greek ananke, uh, which means throat or to press together. It kind of has the, the, the very literal imagery of like choking someone's throat. Uh, so Ananke was the name of the Greek god of constraint as well, who presided over slavery. You can see that this was a word attached to the idea of restraint, specifically around the idea of of the yokes or the rings that, that slaves would wear around their necks and that would hold them in bondage and slavery. Um, and so anxiety has this, has this connected idea linguistically, if you go far back, 
that it's somehow connected to holding us back, to constricting our airways, um, taking us by the throat, if you will. And um, it, it really is a helpful way of thinking about it. It's constricting. Anxiety can feel like that sometimes. Those who have actually had an anxiety attack or knows what it is to kind of experience it on a severe level knows that that, that is how it feels. It feels like your, your life and your mind and sometimes even in physical places of your body, it really is just being all constrained and constrictive. The, the oxygen is just kind of not able to get in. Life is not able to get in. Light is not able to get all the way in. Um, and it's also related to a family of words that represent tightness or narrowness. And like I said, the idea even of suffocation. Now you'll see in the Old Testament, the same sort of idea reflected as well. In the Psalms, you'll see the word used zarar, which is a term that you could translate as human distress. It's translated in a few different ways in, in, uh, in just the Hebrew Bible context. But here's one example from Psalm 18, verse 6. says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. So when you translate the word zarar there for distress or human distress, it would literally translate as a narrow space. Like I'm, I'm, I'm between a rock and a hard place, we might say, right? I'm in just this really narrow bind where I, you know, I don't have room to move, almost this feeling of claustrophobia, if you will, just this claustrophobic like space where I'm, I'm stuck and I'm really confined and I don't have the freedom or liberation. And that's what anxiety does. It just tightens our world. It narrows our world down. It help, it, it moves us in the direction of being narrow-minded. Um, it moves us in the direction of just like zeroing us down into the well-worn ruts that we've always kind of lived into, right? It's almost those just learned patterns of behavior that we don't have even to give any thoughtfulness to that we just kind of... Um, reverse back to and high tension, high anxiety sorts of moments. Anxiety just kind of pulls our life down where we might wake up on a given day uh, in a non-anxious place and have the world as our oyster. And then we've got tons of opportunities and possibilities and all kinds of things that we could do or we could think about or we could spend our energy on. But anxiety is the thing that almost constricts us down, that makes our worlds very small, that has us focus on... Um, a small sliver of what's actually possible in life or in our, in our world. And maybe it just consumes us down to be thinking about the heavier, weightier, more worrisome kinds of things at times that, um, that we don't even necessarily have control over, uh, that we can't necessarily change or do anything about. And so one of the real like horrible things about anxiety is it, it not only constricts our world at times to, only take in pieces of the world which are only bringing us into further further places of maybe fear or worry or whatever that might look like but it it brings us into the very places where we have less and less control over it which only adds to the feeling of constriction or helplessness or hopelessness and all those sorts of things and you can see how it's almost a downward spiral that can go on from there uh, also in the hebrew bible here's an interesting note that the antonym for zarar, I mean, that was the word for human distress. That means like a, a narrow space or, or a constricting space. Um, the, the opposite of that word means open space, uh, yasha. Yasha, uh, you could also translate that as salvation. Um, it's uh, the name of Jesus is Yeshua. And so it's connected in kind of a root way to that word as well. Um, 
And so the idea is just simply this, that anxiety constricts, but freedom looks like having openness, having options laid before you. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that all the problems are taken out of your life, but you, you see a way out of them. You're not just confined into a cage. You're not just locked into like this narrow valley, right, where you're hemmed in maybe on both sides, but you're walking in a wide expanse and there's possibilities and opportunities. You can dream, you can envision, you can create all all these things are now possible. So this is, this is anxiety and this is its opposite. This is the idea of a narrow space versus that of an open space or a space where you've been brought to, where you can be rescued even from it. When we begin to feel less anxious, you start to feel more relaxed, like there's actually room to breathe, like the, even the constriction around your throat, right, in, in, in the context I was speaking of earlier, is just opened up, all your abilities just to breathe in. And sometimes you think about, um, sometimes the advice that you get, you know, when you're in, you're in a lot of stress, you're in a lot of anxiety, is just stop and take a deep breath. And you just think about what you're literally doing there. You're literally counteracting that constricting idea by pressing pause and just breathing deeply. Um, and even that very action alone can be can be quite soothing, right? And it's actually contradicting part of at least the idea or philosophy of what anxiety can do. And when you start begin to see your life having possibilities, not just on this one small narrow track on it lead you to somewhere you don't want to go, but when you begin to see that you have responsibility and you have choices and God is moving and working and he's in the midst of it all and he's guiding you and he's leading you, when you are opened up and set free from anxiety, you now have the ability to imagine the future filled with the presence of God in it, filled with the plans of God being fulfilled in it, like all these things. Things are opened up. And so the, the concept of anxiety, you can see it as just a very, very important idea, a very, very important idea that actually goes down into each and every one of our lives. Now, while there's some of us for sure that deal with this again on, on more of like a diagnosed sort of clinical biochemical level, all of us have some level of this definition of anxiety operating in our lives to some degree or measure. The question is how much or how much at any given time, but there's usually at least just some in there. And the simple fact of that is, is that unless you're completely ignorant of the world around you at any given moment, this world is messed up and it has threats within it. And so you you are going to have at least some of that operating at the base of your mind and your heart. Even if you're not consciously thinking about it, it's probably there some degree. And so the health of people is not just simply, are you going to eradicate all your anxiety, but how, how is it that you're going to respond to it? Are, are you going to allow it to continue to cave in more and more of your world? Or is there going to be some kind of work that you put in to continue to expand your vision beyond what anxiety is just trying to narrow you down to? This way of thinking about anxiety is really, really interesting. And one way to think about it is almost like looking, uh, we used to have uh, you know, a fence when I was growing up and, and there was a, you know, there's like knots in the fence you know, of the wood that sometimes get knocked out. So you have little holes in the fence. And so you could like look through it to see like the neighbors, the backyard or whatever, but you're looking through the hole in a fence and all you can see is what the hole of the fence is allowing you to see, right? So it's constricting your view. Or you might also think of it like looking through like a, 
telescope or binoculars, right? Like um, you can only see what that is allowing you to see or think about like a toilet paper roll that you just put up to your eyes. This is what anxiety does. And so one of the really unfortunate things about anxiety is it can create what uh, one of these phrases that I've really found helpful is imaginative gridlock, meaning it just completely stifles creativity because you can't see everything or think or consider or weigh or ponder everything that might be possible in a moment because anxiety just kind of all it does is just drag you back down it's kind of like the the um, when you pull the plug on your sink and anxiety is that force that's kind of bringing things back into that narrow drain right and so uh, it's when you lay your head on your pillow at night and you might have, there might, if you were to think about it, be hundreds of things going on in your life and lots of different friends and people that you have been or need to or will be interacting with in the future. But anxiety is that thing that continues to pull your mind right back to that same one stressful topic time and time again. And it even comes to the place where even when you think about, well, what am I going to do about it? You just come up with the same one, two, or maybe three options, and none of them you think will really work, and none of them sound really good. Um, and it's it's you just can't you can't find it. It happens to me all the time, uh, and I can think of it in relatively superficial ways or deep ways. But one of the more superficial ways is when I'm at home and I'm late to get to work. Maybe I have a big meeting at work and I can't find my wallet or my keys or something like that. And anxiety really rises up in me, and I'm really in a rush to get out, and I'm afraid that you know my day is all going to be thrown off, and everything's going to be, uh, everything's just going to be a giant mess unless I can get out the door right away. And so in my mind, all I can think about is I need to find my keys, I need to find my keys, I need to find my keys. But all I can think about is like the one or maybe two places where my keys should be hanging up on the hook in the kitchen or in my uh, backpack from the day before, my pockets of my jeans from the day before. All I have are those options. And so what I literally do when I'm in really high anxious moments is I'm just checking those three places over and over and over and over and over until usually I ask my wife, who is a genius at finding stuff, by the way, the absolute genius. Um, I'm telling you, man, if, if, if she would have been assigned to like find uh, like hidden treasure, you know, in the old days, like she would be a wealthy woman. She is so good about finding stuff. Um, so she, I ask her and she, she will just find it. And one of the reasons is I think she just has a, a, a knack for that and just uh, an awareness of things going around the house that, uh, that I don't always have, but also just the simple fact that she's not under the anxiety that I'm under. Her vision isn't narrowed like mine is. You guys, how many times have you noticed this where you're stressed out looking like for your sunglasses only to have someone point them out that they're sitting on your head, right? And this has happened time and again with my keys, same thing. Like I'll be looking from like the kitchen to the pants to the to the um, backpack over and over again. And sometimes it's not in my pants, but it's literally sitting right next to them. And I can't even see it, but my wife can because I'm anxious and anxious constricts my vision. It constricts my ability to see. Constricts constricts my ability to think thoughtfully. Literally, my creative faculties are limited in my brain space. And you can go back to listen to the past episode if if you uh, if you haven't heard it yet. I would really recommend that you do and listen to these in sequence. It's going to be way more helpful that way. But neurologically, we know that's exactly what happens. That under anxiety. Our brains function at the lower brain level, the lizard brain level, the amygdala level, and at that level, it's simply able to process threats in terms of fight, flight, or freeze. 
but the portions of your brain that deal with both memory or uh, problem solving or rational thinking, all those, those stuff are turned offline, or at least significantly so. So you're not even using your full mental capacity to solve your problems, whatever they might be, when you're under anxiety. It's like one of the first things that we're always told, right? Like, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, right? It's why it's such a big idea, this, this concept of anxiety, because when you're anxious, you might have a genuine and legitimate problem that you're facing, a serious threat that's maybe in your life some way, somehow, right? But when you're anxious, you're not even coming up with your best ideas about how to solve it or how to go about it. It's why like both my wife and my friends are hugely significant. The staff I have at my church is hugely significant because there's issues that I get really anxious about. My creativity gets really sh shrunk. But when I'm around people that aren't anxious about it, they've got amazing creativity and they've got ideas like, I never thought of that. And it's not even a hard thought to have thought. And yes, some people are just more naturally creative than others, but this is... Sometimes it's just simply about someone has their brain fully alive and activated in all possible categories and they're not constricted by the same level of anxiety that I have. Now, where you get into real problems is when that anxiety becomes contagious throughout organizations and families and relationships. And so it's not just you with the anxiety searching for your keys that can't find them. You're all under severe anxiety and searching for the keys and can't find them. And all of you have this imaginative gridlock where you are unable to thoughtfully problem solve a situation or a relational conflict of any kind, you're just locked into the same rut, the same routine, the same patterns. You're defensive about the same things you're always defensive about. They accuse you of the same things they always accuse you about. And you kind of just go round and round and round and round in the same circles you've always gone a hundred times before. And you never get to anywhere new until maybe you get tired of it all and give it a little bit of time and space. And you come back together when anxiety is settled down. And you're like, you just kind of forget about it and move on. But that didn't really ever solve the problem. Anxiety shrinks our world. But God wants to save us. And in one sense of what salvation looks like, and, and believe me, I'm not trying to sidestep the idea of salvation looking like forgiveness of our sins, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, um, adoption into the family of God, full reconciliation, uh, union uh, in Christ, um, uh, yeah, relationship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. I, I could rattle off all the other justification by grace through faith. I'm not trying to, okay, yes, all, to all those things. But one of the ways in which salvation looks like in our life is setting us free. And the freedom we're set from is not just, it's not just from the patterns of behaviors that are destructive or sinful, but it's even the very root of what has driven us to them in the first place. And that's why I'd like to unpack a little bit of the biblical story and the biblical passage of Genesis 3 to help us see that if all we ever do is try to manage us, ourselves behaviorally, or if we just think of even God's salvation in our life, his rescuing or freedom he brings to our life is just entirely rooted in the stuff that we do. And we don't see it as even an emotional process of wanting to set us free from the anxiety that holds us in this narrow, constricted space. Um, we miss out on a ton. We miss out on, on a whole lot. Now, I want to walk through Genesis 3, and um, 
I want to say this before I do so, that one of the ways that people will automatically respond when the conversation of anxiety comes up is it'll, um, it'll press the trigger point right on to many of our anxieties. And especially for those of us that maybe suffer from severe anxiety, maybe a, a diagnosed disorder of anxiety of some kind. When you begin the conversation about the Bible, sometimes we, we're not only anxious, but we're anxious about the idea we're never going to not be anxious. And so what sometimes is unfortunately heard, even if it's not directly said, is that the Bible or faith or Jesus is just this simple little solution to all your anxiety. And if you could just have enough faith or trust them enough, all of it would just disappear and go away. And we present faith as this very simplistic solution and tell people that if you maybe have anxiety in your life, it's just because you don't have enough faith. And once you get more faith, you won't have anxiety. And that whole line of thinking is itself anxiety inducing. And so may I please encourage you, if that's the message you pass on to people to stop, but may I also encourage you, if that's the message that you're hearing, regardless of what maybe someone is saying or intending to say, but if that's kind of what you, your kind of anxious cycle internally is continuing to tell you, could you also please just pause in this moment and take a deep breath and hear what the scriptures might have to say about anxiety and its role in our lives and the freedom that Christ may have to offer and to receive this not as some burden that's being laid upon you to do something you're not able to do as if we're asking someone with a broken leg to go run a marathon. But if you would receive this as a gracious, beautiful truth that may not snap its fingers over you and completely change you 100% on the spot, but where God himself, by his grace, could take you by the hand and begin to lead you, at least in the direction of healing and, and becoming more non-anxious. I've seen God do miraculous things, even in the realms of mental and emotional health. I've seen him just change people on the spot. I have. And I've known people long enough that have gone through moments like that to see, like, yeah, it's legit. And I've also seen people that have, although they have had radical moments happen in their lives of, of meeting God or God moving powerfully in their life, they've, they've had to walk it out over a slow and ongoing battle of um, fighting the good fight of faith and walking with compassionate and um, gracious Christians to help them recover. And that process is, is not an easy one. It's a hard-fought one. So I'm, as I present scripture here, I'm going to ask you to be careful of the message that you're perpetrating, but also I'm going to ask you, because like, this, is, this is every bit as much of the, of the issue. If that is the drain that all the messages you hear just funnel back down to, is that this problem is your fault, and if you could just swallow this magic pill, whatever it may be in the faith spectrum, you'd be fine. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying here, but I am offering hope that no matter where you are in your life, um, God wants to meet you there and God wants to lead you from there to a place that is open, to a place that is free, 
and that might look fast, it might look slow, but it's not meant to discourage you either way because it's the presence of God in our life as we walk with him in our life that is the most amazing hope, regardless of whatever junk and burdens we're carrying as we do. He's going to help us to let go of them. He's going to help set us free from them. But it's not the idea that, um, yeah, I've got to get everything straightened out and then I'll experience the fullness of God's love and presence. It's God wants to give you the fullness of his love and presence. And then he's going to walk with you to get some things worked out. So with that being said, you guys, let's go to, uh, let's go to Genesis 3. And let's just slowly and thoughtfully ponder this whole process. This is the original sin, if you will. This is the fall of the first humans presented in the scriptures. And I want you to pay attention to this passage. If you're a Christian, there's a good chance you've read this or studied this or have heard this preached or maybe even preached it yourself a lot of times. I know I do. And it is shocking how small of a chapter this is and yet how dense it is with stuff. Um, So let's pay attention to some of this stuff. And anxiety is not going to be mentioned anywhere here directly. Um, a little later on, it's going to, Adam's going to talk about how he was afraid. Um, and yes, so that, that's going to pop up for sure. Um, but we're, we're going to be doing maybe, maybe what some of you would say is just speculation. Um, but I think the, the scriptures, what they invite us to do, like when we, when we are thinking about things beyond exactly what's said, okay, we have to hold that a little bit looser than the words that are actually said, no question. But I think the scriptures, because of their very nature, these very short, pithy passages that are inviting us to think deeper about them. And so let's just think deeper about them. And um, maybe not all our thoughts will be right or correct about it, but I think as we kind of process through, see ourselves even in this moment, there's some things that will begin to jump out of us as well. And I think there's a lot of what the Psalms have to say. There's a lot of even what the New Testament that will have to say that will make sense in light of what's being said here. So here we go, you guys. It says, now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And the snake talked to the woman saying, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It seems like a relatively simple and innocuous question. And so the woman replies, "Uh, hold up a second. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Actually, the command was they could eat from any tree in the garden they wanted. There was only one they couldn't. And so she says that essentially. We can eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But what God did say was, you can't eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, or you must not touch it, or you will die. And here's where the snake jumps in and says, you won't die. So this is where he directly comes in to call God a liar. God said you will certainly die, but you won't certainly die. He lied to you. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so right here in this moment, let's just slow this down for a sec. What's going on inside the woman? So she's having a conversation with the serpent, and there's just way too much in that whole sentence alone to be explored that we're not going to be able to do here and now, but I don't know, maybe someday. But in this conversation, the accusation is that God had lied to you. Essentially, he's not blessing you, and he's not protecting you from a tree he says will kill you. He's oppressing you. He's holding you back. He's not, you think he's good, and he tells you maybe he's good, but he's not. 
And even though they have trees surrounding them 360 degrees, the serpent only wants to center in on this one tree they were commanded not to eat from, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the reason why this tree was so significant is because the knowledge of good and evil was meant to be God's prerogative alone. He's the only one in Genesis 1 and 2 who's been saying that things are either good or not good. He alone has a right to declare whether something is good or not good. So his creation, his humanity, that was meant to live in a relationship with him, was meant to live in faith, meaning they were meant to relationally trust what God said was good and not good, and therefore carry that out into the world. They weren't to decide for themselves whatever was good or not good, and therefore live autonomously from God or independently from God. They were actually meant to meaningfully relationally trust God, not just for the micromanagement of everything they were going to do, but certainly for the definition of what was good and evil, what was right and not right, what was good and not good. And so this is at the fundamental basis of the story is will the humans trust God? Will they trust him for whatever is good or not good? Or will they believe the lie of the serpent, that God is a liar, that he's not good, and that when he said, when you eat of this fruit, you will die, he was lying to you. So He's coming off as if he's trying to protect you from this fruit, but he actually knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God. You will actually uh, ascend. You will transcend your mere humanness, and you'll become more like him in a way you can't even fathom. And so in reality, he's oppressing you and holding you back. And you guys, this is the age-old echoing lie that's still reverberating in our own individual minds and collective cultural mind today. Is God blessing us or oppressing us? Is he protecting us or is he actually restricting us? Is he the one that provides and gives and leads us to life or is he the one keeping us from it? So when God tells me not to do something, when he restricts my sexual life, when he restricts uh, my financial life, when he restricts um, my personal health life, when my interpersonal relational life, when he restricts any of those things, Is he a killjoy? Is he taking life away from me? Or is he actually protecting me from death? This is the question. And the issue will always come back down to, well, well, do we trust him or do we not? Not can we prove empirically whether what God has said is actually true or not true. That's, That's not even the point. The point is, do we trust the character of the one who said it? Is he good? Is he really good? Is he actually good? Does he love us? Does he actually love us and care about us? Is he genuinely and actually blessing us, keeping us from death and harm, or oppressing us? And so the decision laid before the human right here is a real one. For the the woman specifically, it's a very real one. And if you were to slow down this moment and ponder what's going on in her Man, you got to think about this for a second. What is she feeling? It doesn't use any feeling language here. It's going to be a very interesting next little process moment. She's going to go down here a moment. We'll get to that. But what is she feeling? I would say that she is feeling what I would describe as anxiety. She just had a lie presented to her about something that she held as a bedrock truth of her life. That God was good and blessed them and provided them all things except this one tree that would kill them. And so that's a good heads up. 
That's a good heads up. That's a good God that would tell you that in the midst of all the goodness he has provided for you, there's one thing that is withheld from you because it will kill you. And you can trust him. You can totally trust him. He hasn't done anything to contradict his goodness. Everything he's made, everything he's done is good. And even when things aren't good enough, you know, he just, he makes them better. So the woman has to think to herself, is God really who he says he is? Is he really good? Is he really blessing me? And that lie that God isn't starts to weave itself into her mind and into her heart and create a disturbance. It creates uh, a doubt. And doubt is psychologically painful. It is, it is anxiety. This is a threat. Oh no, I've thought I've been free in this garden the whole time. Is it actually a prison? I thought I've had real, true, abundant life this whole time. Is this actually slavery? Bondage? And that weighing and pondering this stuff is heavy. Now think also the implications of what this means. Up to this point, there's been an entire reliance upon the presence of God and the life of God and the wisdom of God and God's complete leadership and direction and all things that are good and not good and God's provision of all things that they could have and weren't supposed to, like it's all been with God. And so the second that you now have the very character of God questioned, that also leaves the woman in, in, a, in a very anxious spot to consider, well, what if I can't trust him? That would mean this is all on me. If I can't trust him, like who else can I trust? Well, maybe the serpent, because he's the one giving me the heads up right now. But if I can't trust God, that's kind of just going to push down a domino that's going to make all a bunch of other dominoes. And if I can't trust God, who can I really trust? And eventually all the dominoes are going to start falling. All the interpersonal relationships you have, uh, all the other facets of God's creation that exist. And eventually that domino line will come all the way back to you. And you will come up with the rational conclusion that if I cannot trust God, all that I can truly trust is me. And so if God isn't the one looking out for me, I had better start. If God is the one oppressing me, I better fight back. And if God's not the one giving me life, I better go make a life for myself. And so the human impulse right here in this moment, the anxious impulse, again, that hasn't produced anything externally yet, but it's all the roots of it, I would say, are emotionally there. And by emotional, I mean that sort of inner turmoil and reactivity is all there. It is that general threat to the world in which you thought you knew that's now been completely disturbed. And, and she hasn't made a choice about what she's going to do about that disturbance just yet, but that disturbance is yet there. And so she has to ponder, what do I do with this? You can either continue to trust God and press through this lie, maybe even refuse to have the whole conversation about God without God and just say, well, let's, let's, just, uh, let's just wait till he takes a walk here in a few moments and we'll just have the conversation directly with him and we'll clear this whole thing up. Could have done that. Or you let your mind go down. Maybe I have to be more self-reliant. Maybe I have to be more self-made. Maybe I have to be more self-centered. Maybe I should really only trust myself. Maybe I should follow my heart. Maybe I should trust my gut. Maybe I should just do me. Maybe I should just be my most authentic self. Maybe I should just look out for me. Maybe I should save myself from God. 
this this is the philosophical emotional rationale happening here and so with this anxiety in place here's how she does respond it says when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it now listen to that she saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and also pleasing to the eye meaning watch how her focus shifted of all the trees that God had given to her, 360 degrees around her, she's now looking through that narrow hole in the fence and all she's looking at is the one tree she was told not to have, right? So look at how anxiety is already playing itself out. It's narrowed her vision. And when she looks at the tree, what does she see? Well, the tree's supposed to kill her, but there's external evidence that she's now interpreting to the contrary. Whereas before, whether the tree looked good or it didn't look good, whether the fruit looked delicious or it didn't look delicious, when you trust God, you believe that it'll kill you, and so you don't give it much more thought than that. But now that the anxiety of maybe God's a liar is in your life, you're looking at it and say, well, now the same evidence I've always seen that the, tr- the fruit looks good now is in collusion with my anxiety and my fear, and now I'm interpreting even the look of the fruit as a sign that maybe, indeed, God was lying to me. Maybe if it looks good, it actually is good for me to have. And here's something so important to ponder and consider in your own life. You are not nearly as rational and objective as you would like to believe that you are. Nobody is. Nobody is. I know in my relationship with my wife, I'm always the one accusing her of uh, being totally non-objective and irrational at times. But the truth is, not like I am just as irrational and non-objective as, as her most of the times. I can play it off differently, and sometimes she's more so, and I'm more so, and so on and so forth. It's not always equal, but all humans across all time, no one is unbiased. No one is purely objective. And watch how the same interpretation of facts on the ground can be skewed. In one sense, before the snake shows up, how the fruit looks doesn't matter. What does it matter if a jar of poison is branded in a really sexy bottle or not? If it's poison, it's poison, and you don't want anything to do with it. But the second someone tells you, ooh, it's not poison, it'll help you. It'll give you like immediate six-pack abs if you drink that thing, and it'll help you live twice as long and be twice as smart and jump twice as high or whatever. Now, all of a sudden, you're looking at the same facts and information, and rather than just dismissing them or not even thinking deeply about them, now you're pondering them. Well, why would that bottle look so good if it was actually poison? That doesn't make any sense. Why? And it's totally irrelevant how good or not good the fruit of the tree looks. The woman, in one sense, is already starting to decide for herself whatever is good or not good before she even eats the fruit that is supposed to give her the knowledge of whatever is good or not good. She's already on the path, already going down the path of not trusting God to tell her whatever is good or not good for her. She's looking and evaluating for herself. She's not trusting God. She's trusting herself. This is what anxiety does, my friends. It starts putting your trust in self. It shrinks your world down to where all that you can truly think of and manage is yourself. Even if you're thinking of others or situations outside yourself, 
you're not truly thinking about them for the benefit of everyone else. You're just ultimately just consumed with them for your own inward reasons. Now, that would take a lot more to unpack that sentence. I realize I just kind of threw a bomb out there. But this is, this is at least generally speaking, again, generally speaking, what anxiety does. It constricts our world. And how does it constrict us? It constricts us into self-centeredness. Martin Luther called it like that inward curvature, that we're bent in on ourselves. All things kind of funneled back into ourselves. I like the idea of a drain. And you pull a drain and all the water kind of circles down to one spot. This is how human beings have become. So ponder this. The woman becomes very self-centered. And she's considering what is good for herself on her own terms. And may I just please remind you, this is the champion rallying cry of our cultural moment here in the West and probably beyond. And it's not new, but it's loud. She's deciding for herself what's best for herself. She's making her own choices about herself and what's best for herself, what's good for herself. Let that sink in. Humans. Hmm. I get it in the sense of society that sometimes it is good for humans to decide what's right and what's best for themselves rather than allowing other humans to decide that for them. I get that that can be a thing. Um, but when you start introducing God into the equation, humans independently deciding what's good for themselves completely separated from God is not a good thing. And so the woman sees the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She, she could see that not only did it look good, but she started to desire it because she saw that it could give her wisdom in her heart, the wisdom of knowing good and evil for herself. So she took some and she ate it. And then she also gave some to her husband, who was apparently with her the whole time, and he ate it. So unless you want to think this is just a story about womanhood, this is a story of humanity. Because whatever process she's going through explicitly in the text, somehow the man, maybe in his own way, is going through it as he's just watching her. And he certainly participates in the eating of the fruit in the end. And so this is a story about humanity. And if you ever want to know who's to really blame for this moment, whether it's the woman or the man, just look at Paul. Um, and in the book of Romans, he blames Adam. And in Ephesians, he blames uh, Eve, or in Timothy, he blames Eve. So, yep. So, just yes. So, who's at fault? Yes. <laughs> just, just yes. Who's worse? Both of them. Somehow are just simultaneously worse. That's just, <laughs> so that's, so that's that. Um, I don't mean to get into a thing about that. So, watch the process that she goes down. She looks at it, sees that it's good. She starts to desire it, seeing that if she had it, it would give her something in her life. And so she takes something, so then she takes it and she consumes it into herself. And I've uh, said this in a few different contexts and in, in some of my sermons and teachings and so forth. But do you realize the process she went down? It's the process of falling in love. Meaning she'd started with a lie from the serpent. It fused in her heart to produce anxiety. And then as she looked out away from God and all of his good provision for her and directly onto the one thing he forbid her, she starts to see that it's good on the outside, realize that it actually has something on the inside that would be good to have in her life. And so she reached out and take it. And that is how falling in love happens. That's how it works, you guys. 
I don't know if you've ever fallen in love before, but that's how you fall in love. It starts with a look. You see someone on the outside and you say to them like, yeah, you look good. Or you, well, maybe you don't say it to them, but you say it to yourself. And if you don't say it consciously, you're saying it subconsciously. They look good. And so they look good. And then you go, you investigate further and you realize, well, is there more than just outward appearance? And you look, well, what do they have in terms of inward qualities? I'm like, oh, look at that. He has a sense of humor. Oh, look at that. She's a hard worker. Oh, look at that. She's really smart. Oh, Oh, look at that. Oh, he makes a lot of money. Or like whatever it is, right? And so you look at the outward appearance first, and then you start to investigate deeper to see the inward appearance, and you find the beauty in the outside, you find the beauty on the inside, and decide whether you want to take it and have it as a part of your life. And if you do, if you see that it's good on the outside and the inside, then you reach some, you take it, and you bring it in to make it part of your life. You have a relationship with it, and that's how you fall in love, guys. Augustine was famous for describing this whole process as it's about our affections being warped, that humans were made by God who is love, which means we are made by love, in love, for love. And this isn't a moment where humans stopped loving. It's a moment where humans redirected their love. We fell in love with God's creation over the creator. We fell in love with something forbidden rather than the one who gave us all things for our enjoyment and benefit. We fell in love with the one thing that God said would kill us. We believed the lie of the serpent rather than trust in the truth of God himself. And we chose to turn our backs on the God who every shred of evidence in their lives and in the world around them screamed of the faithfulness and goodness of God and instead chose to constrict and narrow their thinking, their imagination, and even their actual vision through their anxiety down to this one little factual good-looking fruit that they then misinterpreted, misinterpreted because of their anxiety and because they started absorbing the lie that God was not who he said he was. And they rejected their love for God and began to redirect it into this fruit. And in so doing, the lies infected their minds and their hearts as they redirected their affections and loves and they took the fruit. And we call that sin. But the process emotionally, affectionately, uh, even in terms of thoughtfully involved is dense. It goes so much deeper. It's not just about the eating of the fruit, you guys. It's about the betrayal of God, the severing of a relationship, the mistrust, the self-centeredness, the redirecting of our loves. It's about the belief of a lie of God's enemy and the rejection of God's truth about himself. It's about taking our responsibility to actually be a witness for the goodness of God and instead be, stand in alignment with lies spread about him. It's about allowing the anxiety that got brought up inside of us and instead of choosing that moment to run run into the arms of our father to explore more deeply who he was and to wrestle through that doubt in his presence. We instead took that anxiety and ran to the very place he had forbidden us to. And in so doing, severed ourselves from his presence and from relationship with him. And so when God does come walking into the garden in the cool of the day, he asks Adam, where are you? And his response is, well, I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And so he freely confesses he was afraid. No question anxiety was a part of that. 
And no question anxiety is still driving their decisions of how they're going to react with God. Because even Adam's own confession, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Do you notice one thing that's missing from that? Yeah, the whole story of did you or did you not just eat the fruit I commanded you not to. So the one thing God is inviting them to confess, Adam is actually avoiding. And why? Why? Man, anxiety. It's still keeping them back from God because not only did they utterly reject God's goodness, but now they're continuing to reject God's goodness. Because this could have been a moment where they threw themselves into God's mercy, realized that God wasn't there, maybe even to bring down harsh judgment upon them, but to actually restore them and reconcile them, which is exactly what he actually intends to do. But instead, they just maybe assume the worst. Again, they're biased, anxious hearts and minds aren't even fully responding to the God who's trying to reconcile with them. It's tragic. But it's not just their story. It's our story. It's our story, you guys. It's our story of anxiety. It's our story of anxiety. We do that. We, we turn our back on God a lot because we have chosen to trust in ourselves. We have misinterpreted all kinds of data and information around us as threatening or leading us to conclusions that aren't true. We've allowed the lies to commingle with our affections and we've chose to love ourselves rather than God. We've chose to put ourselves first rather than God. We've chose to believe that nobody loves me like I love me, rather than the God who made me in love, by love, for love, like a fountain of overflowing goodness of love spread out in my direction constantly and infinitely. We've instead somehow decided that no, me as the recipient of that love, can somehow just redirect my love back into me. And that, that is a safer substitute for trusting him. This is, where, this is where anxiety leads us. To sin. To self-centeredness and pride and self-love. And when you get all these concepts framed in your mind and your heart well, it'll help us begin to talk about, well, what does it actually look like then to become non-anxious? To not just furiously try to correct all of our bad behaviors that the Bible calls sin, but actually deal with the anxiety that's driving us to those behaviors in the first place. And not just the really bad immoral behaviors the Bible specifically spells out, but also the kinds of behaviors that can look really self-righteous. Because here's the issue, you guys. The same anxiety that would drive many to do immoral things that would disobey God's commandments, so to speak, it's the same anxiety that drove the Pharisees and teachers of the law to be completely confident in their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. And when Jesus came, his conflict was primarily with them. 
because they would look at all the laws of God and feel like, no, we're not breaking any of these. And Jesus said, like, yeah, but you've completely missed the point of what loving relationships actually look like. And you've missed that you have every bit as much of a need as they do. In your anxiety, you have chosen self-righteousness and religious performance as your self-centered salvation project. And God needs to save you from that every bit as much as he needs to save the prostitute and tax collector. And it's very difficult for us to think that the highly religious and respected members of our community that seem very moral and upright would need salvation as much as the degenerates, as much as the people who are the outcasts and on the wrong side of all the moral issues of our day. But they do. Because the question is ultimately, who do we trust and who do we love? And when our obedience comes from faith expressing itself in love, then it's a beautiful thing, exactly how we were designed to live. But I can tell you right now that my childhood and early adulthood was marked by extreme morality, which is based entirely in a self-centered attempt to prove my worth to God and others, to save myself through my moralism. And at times it was philanthropically bent and looked like I was really kind or generous or servant-minded, but there was a lot of anxiety that told me if I wasn't carefully following all of my self-chosen morals, that my life would fall apart existentially or spiritually. It was self-salvation. And it was anxiety-driven and anxiety-inducing. And after 20 years of following Jesus, I can tell you that who I am now and the anxiety that I have now is a whole lot different than what it was then. My friends, I'm telling you that there is hope and there is hope in Jesus. And there is hope because God is not wanting to leave us to our anxiety, but wants to save us. Save us from sin and the anxiety of this world so that we can come back and trust him. Rebel against the status quo of trusting in ourselves. And once again, trust him. And we're never going to live in a state of perfect, perfect harmony and internal non-anxiousness in this world, at least. But that isn't to say that knowing Christ by faith, which means relational trust and loving him and not myself, that that isn't going to set us free significantly. So my invitation is not to try harder to trust God. My invitation is to, if anxiety has constricted your view down to maybe only a few things, maybe only even thinking about yourself and your own anxiety, step back. 
Look around. And if that's too hard to do, simply ask God to meet you and save you, to bring you into an open space where you can begin to see where he is and what he's doing. You can begin to know him and not believe the lie that somehow he's either absent or that he's against you. And, uh, and we can find real hope. You guys, as always, I'm deeply appreciative uh, for you listening and your support and your encouragement. And um, so if you guys wouldn't mind just sharing this and, uh, and spreading this around, that would be really awesome. I'd appreciate you guys spreading the word because I really feel like this is a timely and important message now, maybe more than ever, but it, it will always be an important an important message to process. All right, you guys, this is it for this edition of Church in the Wild. Stay tuned for our next episode coming up in just a couple of days, and I will talk to you all shortly.